0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, I have a a theory um, about childhood And this theory is uh, based on not only my personal experience from when I was a child, but uh, also my wife, Rebecca, and I, we have three small children, and we have um, about a dozen nieces and nephews, and so uh, I have a theory that at some point, every child experiments with telling a lie. That at some point, every child just has to kind of, they've got to give it a a shot. They've got to just try it and see what it's like. And um, it's it's a great opportunity as parents or, or an uncle or an aunt. Um, it's a great opportunity to, you know, teach them in that moment about telling the truth, but it's also a little bit amusing because typically for that small child, when they're trying out lying for the first time, it's never a good lie. I mean, it's always a very, very bad lie. And, um, so while it's a teachable moment, it's also somewhat entertaining. And so I remember, um, it was one of the the children in our family. And, um, I remember I was, I think I was sitting like in the living room and, uh, on the couch, and I saw them, and, and they're uh, maybe over in the kitchen or something, and um, I knew that there's just something mischievous going on, and uh, maybe they were stealing a cookie or something like that, and so I said, hey, um, hey would you just come here for a, a quick second, and they came over, and I said, hey, um, you know, what you doing, and all of a sudden, like, oh, ah." Uh, yeah i was just i had my my water bottle and you know what i was refilling my water bottle. yeah that's i was refilling my water bottle that's what i was i was doing yeah refilling it with water in it and i said oh okay and then i looked at the the side table right there by the couch and i said you're refilling your water bottle you're refilling was it this water bottle right here? And right next to me, just in broad daylight, you couldn't miss it, was their water bottle. I mean, it could not have been more perfect. And I remember they like, just their eyes just lit up. And I'm, I'm trying to, you know, engage in a teachable moment, but I'm trying not to be very entertained because it was, it was humorous, just the look on their face. It was just this flood of emotions of, you know, oh no, I've been found out. You know, that look on their face. And there's all these emotions I could see, like now fear and then panic and then, guilt, and all of these different emotions, all with having been found out in that moment. And you know, the funny thing is about all of those emotions, I think what's amusing to us as adults is those are all emotions that we are also familiar with. It's just we see it on the face of a child and they may not have the same ability for a small child, the same ability to hide it as well as we do. But of all of those different emotions... One of the most powerful emotions of all of those things, whether it's fear or guilt or or whatever it may be, one of the most powerful is shame. That that feeling of being found out and the shame that, that comes with that, that of all emotions is one that not only just we feel, I mean, emotions come and go, but shame has a way of shaping us. And to one degree or another, each one of us deals with this concept of shame. But I want to show you part of the Christmas story that speaks directly to this idea of shame. And it speaks to how we can be freed of shame in a way that nowhere else in all the world can we find freedom like that. And so I want you to open in your Bible, if you have a Bible or Bible app, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. And here's what we're doing in our series. We're called, in a series called Dreaming of Hope. And what we're doing is we're going through parts of the, the gospel of Matthew. It's what that particular book in the Bible is called. Um, Matthew. We're going through various parts and we're tracing parts of the story of Joseph. And Joseph through the story has several dreams. God guides Joseph through several dreams. And we're going to go through these, each of these dreams one at a time. And we're going we're to discover how that brings this, unleashes this hope in our lives. So we're going to look at this first dream And I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Here's what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, there's a lot of different uh, concepts here describing the relationship with Mary and Joseph. What you see in here is, it talks about how they were betrothed it at one point refers to um, Joseph as Mary's husband. It talks about divorce, but it also talks about how they have not yet come together. So what's going on with, with their relationship? Where are they at in their relationship right now? And that's very important to understand the context of this story. Because when we think of people getting engaged and married in our culture, how it typically happens is you find someone that you're dating and you fall in love and then you get engaged. And engaged, you're not actually married. It's just kind of the promise of getting married, and so then you move through an engagement process, and then in one moment you have a wedding, and it's it's a celebration with your family and friends. So it's like this, it's like a relational celebration. It's also um, a spiritual moment. You know, many for people of faith, they have uh, their their spiritual leader. One of us is pastors. If you're part of City Rev Church, you know, one of your pastors will be. A part of it, and, and there's a spiritual moment, and it's also a legal moment. There's a, an actual wedding certificate, a marriage certificate license that gets signed, and so there's all these things happen in one moment. But that's not how it happens in ancient times. So, in Jesus' day, in Matthew chapter 1, that time period, it would happen differently. First of all, the couple is much younger, they're probably in their teenage years. And um, their parents have arranged their marriage. So their parents have found a spouse for them. And so then there's a point where there's an actual contract moment. It's this legal moment where they become betrothed. Their engagement process is different. The legal part happens first. So they're not living together yet. They're not, they haven't um, consummated the marriage yet. They're, not, they're still, um, the physical intimacy is not yet part of the marriage. They're still living separately, but they're legally considered, that betrothal part, they're legally considered married. They're legally husband and wife. And so whereas in our culture, if someone wanted to break up the engagement, there's nothing legally happening. After you've been betrothed at that point to break that off, you have to break that contract, even though the wedding ceremony hasn't happened. You'd have to break that off, and it would actually be a divorce. In that betrothal place, that is where this story takes place. Mary and Joseph are already, uh, they've been promised to each other. They have now um, legally made it official. They're betrothed, but they're not living together yet. They've not yet come together. That will happen after the wedding ceremony. That's where they're at, but here's what happens. Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, And he knows that Mary is not pregnant by him. It's not his child. And so it says that he decides to divorce her, to break off the betrothal, to divorce her quietly. Now, here's the reality of the situation. If his betrothed wife is found to be pregnant, that brings shame on both Mary and Joseph and their families. And the assumption is going to be that the child is Joseph's. And so Joseph has got a couple options. Obviously, he's dealing with the emotional side that she's cheated on him. She's betrayed him. He's brokenhearted and disappointed. So the relationship, you know, he's probably not, he's not been in a long relationship with this woman. It was arranged. So he's probably that relationship in his mind is probably broken. And so his options is is probably for his own sake, the most selfish thing for him to do would be to break it off publicly. So he would take her maybe to the ruler of the synagogue and say, look, she's pregnant. It's not mine. I'm breaking off the engagement because I've not done anything wrong so that he doesn't bring any shame on himself. But here's what you see. And I think it's important for us so many thousands of years later to really honor Joseph for his compassionate heart here. Because what Joseph does is he wants, he's, he, the best move would be to publicly divorce her so that there's no shame on him. But he's going to do it quietly. He knows that, you know, in his mind, she's betrayed him. So, but he's going to try and not bring shame on her, even though it's going to be risking shame for him. Wait, aren't you and Mary engaged? You know, aren't you going to be married? You know, she has a child. Is that child yours? I mean, he's, He's going to risk shame, bringing shame on himself, to try and protect her from shame. You see just real godliness there. So the reality is, Mary is Mary's pregnant. They're, they've not yet had their marriage ceremony. And so it's brought shame into the relationship. I mean, what else is Joseph going to think? I mean, if she's pregnant, there's shame. Except for one, one scenario. There's only one possible scenario in this whole circumstance that would remove the shame from this circumstance. I want you to see what it says next. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Uh, Excuse me, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Incredible moment here. And God's just, his care for Joseph to walk him through this. Um, by sending him an angel in a dream to know what to do, he Joseph, as he's pondering all these things, he's kind of made his plan. Okay, I, I think I'm. I, I feel like I have to divorce her, but I'm gonna do it quietly. I don't want to bring any shame on her, but I don't know what else to do. And he has a dream. And in that dream, God sends an angel to speak to him, and he says, "Joseph, go forward in this in this relationship. Go forward with the wedding ceremony. Um, make her your wife." He says, "Go forward with that because that that." Baby in her womb was placed there by the Holy Spirit, and what does it say? Joseph woke up, and this is what we'll see with all these dreams. Joseph wakes up from the dream, and the first thing he does is just obey. I mean, incredible faith. And maybe you're hearing this, and you're thinking, "Look, okay, I I hear this, and I I I, I respect Jesus, or maybe even say I love Jesus. You might even say like I follow Jesus, but." When I hear about these kinds of things, it just sounds like it's legendary. I mean, it just sounds like it's mythical. I mean, here's Mary a virgin birth. I mean, and maybe even say like, I kind of feel bad saying it, but it's just really hard for me to believe. I mean, you're saying that Mary, that God placed inside this woman, uh, a li- just placed life in there. Like the whole virgin birth thing, it just seems so just so far-fetched. It's really, really hard to believe. But I want you to see what this says very carefully here. I want you to see what it says, because the Bible does not take the stance of, wait, you don't believe that? That's crazy. You don't believe that a virgin birth happened? Well, come on. Of course it could happen. That's not the stance that the Bible takes. The Bible's tracking with how crazy this is, and it reminds us that this was prophesied, that this would happen, and it quotes Isaiah. Now, just as a reminder, Isaiah is written in the Old Testament and was written 700 years before Jesus was born. That's not just like the math that theologians use, that is historical facts. I mean, there's an actual scroll of Isaiah. You could go see it. I've seen it. It's in a museum in Jerusalem. It's a scroll that they found uh, of Isaiah. And that particular scroll dates well over a hundred years before the time of Jesus. I mean, the fact that it was foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin woman is prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So the stance the scripture is taking is, this is so crazy. Humanity, we're going to give you a long on-ramp to prepare for the fact that God is going to do something crazy. So crazy that this is going to happen one time in all of the humans that have ever been born. It's going to happen one time. They estimate that there has been over 100 billion humans that have walked on this planet throughout history. And out of all those 100 billion, God is going to do something absolutely astonishing and crazy one time. Why? Because he wants to mark this particular human out of all the 100 billion humans saying, pay special attention to this one. This miraculous birth. You say, it's still hard to believe. It might be hard to believe, but if you believe there's a God, then it's on the table logically because God can do what he wants. He can break into the natural world that he created and do something supernatural. And what God has done is saying, I am marking this particular human out of all the, the tens of billions of humans that have existed, pay special attention to this. See, there is one possible scenario, one in 100 billion that takes the shame out of the situation that Mary and Joseph see here in their experience. One possible situation. And that's that the baby in Mary's womb is the Messiah. Jesus is what takes the shame out of the situation. That it's actually true. Mary has done nothing wrong. God placed that life in her womb and planted it right there in her womb. Miraculously. I want you to think about Mary and Joseph's journey. Um, You know, this was almost certainly, I mean, they... You know, went down to Bethlehem, and, but they ended up back in Nazareth. I mean, it's a small town. People talk in small towns. You know, this probably hung over their lives, probably the remainder of their life. But think about what eventually happened. That child that was uh, assumed to be outside of their marriage and bringing shame into their life, that child grew up to be Jesus who what this says is he came to take away sins. So he would eventually die on a cross paying for our sins. And when he rose again from the dead, it proves that he was not just from God, it was God in the flesh. And so all of their lives, they had the shame hanging over them until Jesus died and rose again. And think of how things shifted once Jesus rose again. Ever since then, after all the shame they must have endured through their lives since that moment of Jesus rising again, and followers from all over the world began following Jesus throughout the centuries, there are few people in this world that are more honored in history than Mary and Joseph. In fact, there's a good chance some of you put an inflatable version of them on your lawn this past week. There are few people more honored than Mary and Joseph. In fact, I recently um, read a, a statistic that over the last few hundred years, when we have more detailed census records, so it probably stretches beyond that, but over the last couple hundred years, the single most common name Um, that girls have been named around the world is Mary by a long shot. It's the most common name. In fact, many of you are named Mary or Maria or your middle name is Marie. It's one of the most common names. In fact, one article I read said it's the mother of all girl names. How honored are Mary and Joseph? See, there's only one thing that could possibly take that shame away. It was Jesus See what a picture this is? A picture of what he came to do. The fact that it wasn't just any baby in her womb, it was Jesus, the Messiah from God, God in the flesh. The fact that it was Jesus is what took their shame away because that's more literally and spiritually what he came to do to take all of our shame away. And how did Jesus do that? Jesus did that by dying a a shameful death on the cross, stripped, naked, humiliated, nailed to a cross as a criminal. And he took all, even though he was innocent, took all that shame. What was he doing? He was paying for our sins before God so that we could be forgiven. And then he died on the cross. He's buried. And on the third day, he rises again from the dead, from defeating death, defeating shame, defeating sin. And in that victory, he won a victory for Mary and Joseph over their shame too. And that's what he does in our lives. See, what this passage speaks to us about is it speaks to us about how Jesus has come to take away shame. Let's talk about shame for a second. Let's just dig into this concept a little bit more. How does shame work? Shame is is interesting because It's different than guilt. Guilt is a feeling I have about, as a result of a failure in my life. I fail in some capacity, or we fail in some capacity, and we have a remorseful feeling. That's guilt. Shame is different. Shame is there's a failure in my life, and that begins to shape my identity. Shame is not just an emotion. Shame is where it becomes part of who I am. So it's interesting, there's a a difference if you listen to, some of you grammar nerds, if you listen to how various words play out, there's a very big difference between action verbs and being verbs. So for example, if someone says, I play golf, that is very different than if they say, I am a golfer. Am is a being verb. I play golf. Play is an action, an action verb. I am a golfer. That is a completely different thing. I like to play golf. I am not a golfer. If you are a golfer, that means you're a really good, really good golfer. If that's now part of your, if you're using a being verb, I am a golfer. That means golf is part of your identity. That means you're a scratch golfer. That means that you're very good. See, once we use a being verb, we're talking about something that's part of our identity. So what what would I use a being verb for? Well, I am a follower of Christ. That's something I am, it's part of my identity. I am a husband. Those are probably the two most important things about who I am. I am a father, that's part of my identity. I am a pastor. Uh, There are many things that I am that's part of my identity. It's using a a being verb. That also reveals where we feel shame. Because it's one thing to say, man, I I feel like I'm struggling with my parenting, is different than I'm a bad parent. I am a bad mom. I am a, a bad father. One's guilt, one's shame. It's one thing to say, like, you know what I did? I, I cheated. It's another thing to say, I am a cheater. It's one thing to say, I, I failed. That's maybe produces guilty feelings. It's another thing to say, I am a failure. I, I, um, I, I, I am a I, 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 I'm not, I, one thing to say, like, I, I, I'm not as successful as I, I wanted to be. It's another thing to say, I, man, I am a wreck. So what happens is deep inside, we, we often have these feelings of shame. What shame does is when we take our failures and we, we wear them, it becomes part of our identity. But this word in here for shame when Joseph says he wants to spare Mary from shame, this is a very interesting word. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament to describe shame. It, it's this word in here. There's other words to describe shame in the New Testament, but this one is specifically talking about exposing a failure publicly. And, you know, that, that is very much tied to the idea of shame. In fact, what we do is we we hide mistakes and failures we, we don't want other people to see them we hide our weaknesses we don't we don't want people we want people to think the best of us we hide those things. why? because we care about what people think of us because what people thinks think of us so much affects what we think of ourselves. And so part of shame sometimes we, we can we can feel shame over the things that we have in our private life, what we keep secret. But one of the things we do to avoid shame is we, we just can't bear the look in someone's eye if they found out about this and now they think of us different. They respect us less. They see us now as that. And so a lot of times what we do is we hide. We don't want to be exposed because we're, we're trying to not feel shame. Now, every now and then, um, you know, I come across people like, no, that's not, that's not me. I, Uh, I'm not like that. I don't really care that much about what, what people think. You know, it's interesting. There are certain phrases that, um, self-consume. So like once you say it, like immediately, once you say it, the phrase kind of consumes itself, it falls apart. So let me give you a couple examples. For example, um, if I were to say every word that comes out of my mouth is a lie, is that True. Well, that phrase kind of self-consumes because if that's true, that every word that comes out of my mouth is a lie, then I just told a truth, which makes my phrase not true. So that phrase kind of consumes itself. Here's another one. How about this one? There are absolutely no absolutes. Well, that kind of consumes itself because you're saying an absolute about there not being absolutes. Let me give you another one. I don't care what people think of me. You say, wait, why is that self-consuming? Well, obviously you care enough to tell me that you don't care what people think of you. You actually want to make sure that I think that about you. So obviously you do care what people think about you because you're telling me so that I think that about you. In fact, the more someone tries to convince me that they don't care what someone thinks about them, the more I'm like, you're kind of making me think you really, really care about what people think about you because you're trying to make me think that about you. See, the bottom line is, I say all that to say we care. We can't help it. We care what other people think of us. And the reason, and because of that, we have this kind of exhausting battle. We have this constant kind of... um, PR branch of our lives. where We're trying to monitor and manage how the people around us view us. The people in our families. The people that we work with. The people that we're friends with on social media. We're trying to manage their view of how, how they, they view us. And so what we do, we do that. We, we kind of hide. We don't want to be exposed. And all that we want to hide. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to present something that's respectable. That's admirable. And so we kind of manage how people. So we only post the great victory on social media and we curate how our life looks or we only tell the stories that make us look good or, or when we say, we try to say something humble, it's really a humble brag because we're kind of doing this PR thing to make sure everything looks right about us because so often deep inside, we care. We care about what people think of us because it affects our identity and what we're doing is we're running from shame. I don't want you to think of me in light of my failures and It's exhausting. But it's oftentimes not just everybody, sometimes it's particular people. In fact, some of you may be this holiday season planning to see some family members. And maybe there's particular family members in your life that you're like, I, I wish it wasn't like this, but I really care what they view of me. Maybe it's a, a sibling or um, an ex-spouse or maybe it's a parent. And if you're not watching yourself, you'll be like, look, here's my life. Would you bring me that approval? Like, is this enough now? here's, you know, here's my, my college diploma. I just got it. Or here's my, you know, here are my, my, my grades in graduate school. Or here's my, my, my new spouse. We've got this new family. Or here's our new house. Or, or here's some grandkids. Or here's my, my new uh, achievement at work. Or here's this new thing. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to shape how they view us because we build our identity so much on that. We don't want to be, we're trying to run from shame. We don't want to build our identity based on our failures. And so a lot of times we can't help ourselves. We build it based on what other people think of us. But the danger is, you know, the world, our society, has an answer to that. And what they say, are just whether it's psychologically or just culturally, they say, don't view yourself how other people view you. All that matters is how you view you. What do you think of you? That's all that matters. How do you see yourself? here's the problem with that. You're just exchanging one tyrant for another. Because yeah, you might be spending your entire life trying to live up to the expectations of, of others, and they may never give it to you. And you may be afraid that you're gonna disappoint them, but you've got expectations for yourself as well. And you've got expectations that are hard to reach. And I don't know which is worse, to look in the mirror having disappointed myself or to look in the mirror and have impressed myself. I'm not, I'm not sure which is scarier. I actually think the second one is scarier because then I've turned into a, an egomaniac and that's going to bring all types of hurt into my life. So which is it? Do I care about what other people think or do I care about what I think? Maybe there's a third option. Maybe there's one simple solution and it's the same solution that appeared in Jesus' life. In in Mary and Joseph's life, it's that Jesus appeared. Maybe the one simple solution is that Jesus enters in our life and he doesn't make us hide our shame. He doesn't, as we're trying to build our identity on what other people say, he doesn't make us hide our shame, but he also doesn't make us try and look in the mirror and conquer our shame or reinterpret our shame. No, he does something completely different. Jesus enters in and he removes all shame. How does he do that? Well, it starts with this. Um, what this passage says is that Jesus is Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so what that means is that Jesus is God in the flesh. So it starts with this. Jesus knows you more than you think. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus knows you more than you think he does. He knows you more than you think. He made you. He wired you together. He knows your personality. He knows your DNA. He has, before a single Page of your story, it says in Psalms 139, before a page of your story is written, he knew every single chapter of your life. He knows every event of your life. He knows everything that's happened to you. It says, before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. He knows everything that's happened to you. He knows everything that you've done. He knows every word that you've said. It says, he perceives your thoughts from afar. He knows every Thought in your mind and it says he's searched your heart and he knows it. He even knows the motivations of your heart. He knows you more than you think. He knows you more than you know you. Just sit in that vulnerability for a second. Jesus knows you. Every part of you, every word, every thought, every motivation, every action, every event, he knows you more than you think. But there's something else. He knows you more than you think, and he loves you more than you know. He loves you more than you know. He says as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for you. The prayer in scripture over you is that oh that you would comprehend the height and length and breadth and depth of his love for you. How much does Jesus love you? He came to earth dying on a cross. A humiliating shameful death to pay for your sins. Rose again so you could spend eternity in heaven because he wanted to spend eternity with you. He knows you more than you think, and he loves you more than you know. He takes all the shame out. There's nothing you can hide from him, nothing you should hide from him. He knows it all. He sees you just how you are, and he sees all of that, and he says, I love you more than you can comprehend. He takes away all the shame. There's no more hiding. That's the gospel. The gospel is, I am a sinner. And I need someone to rescue me. And there's only one who can. Jesus Christ. And he's rescued me by his death and resurrection. And I am washed clean, forgiven by God, born again. That's the gospel. And it removes shame. So if that's true... Think of what that does to us, church, as a Christian community. What that does in our life, that means that we should be the best equipped to deal with shame. That means above anyone else, we should feel the freedom and the confidence to walk through life wielding vulnerability If you're a leader at work or in your family or in your home or among your friends or maybe here at your church, if you're a ministry leader, you can lead from a place of vulnerability. Why? Because everyone around you, they know that you have weaknesses. You know you have weaknesses. The gospel says you're weak, but he is strong. So you can be vulnerable with your weaknesses knowing that you don't have it all together. You can lead out of that place of vulnerability you, you can be in small group with a place of vulnerability, not trying to act like you have it all together. You can come to church and, and without trying to act like you have it all together. You can talk with your coworkers that you want to share Christ with and, and not act like you've got it all together. You can live with your, your, your family, your, your spouse, your kids, your, 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 those home relationships without trying to act like you've got it all together. You can live with the vulnerability because of the gospel. Because we know that we're all weak, but he is strong. And he's at work in us. We can have a Christian community built around vulnerability. We can have a Christian community. We should, of all people, be the most equipped to be able to admit when we're wrong. Because the gospel tells us we're going to be wrong. We are wrong. And so we feel the confidence to not hide from the shame. Say, man, I was was off base. You were right. I was wrong. I, I messed that up. I can be honest about being wrong. Of all people, we should be the most equipped to have honest conversations with a trusted accountability partner. Because we're sitting down there not trying to impress each other with our profound godliness. We sit down saying, hey man, I am a sinner, but I've been saved by grace and the Holy Spirit is at work in me. I'm not perfect, but he's making me better little by little. And thank you for being on this journey and being patient with me and having grace with me, even though uh, I I mess up along the way. We can have honesty. That's what happens when Jesus removes shame. But maybe you say, look, man, I, I hear that, but it's still hard for me kind of shed worrying about how people view me and I wonder if that's almost impossible because you're wired actually to build your identity on what someone else thinks of you like I wonder if that's actually how we're wired that's why it's almost impossible to turn that off and I wonder if the problem is not, hey, I'm, it, it's not this. I will no longer build my identity on what someone else thinks of me. I wonder if that's not the solution. I wonder if the solution is simply I'm building it on the basis of the wrong people and their view of me. I wonder if we're supposed to build it on what someone else views, me, views of me, but I'm supposed to build it on what God views of me. Can I tell you what Jesus has said about you? This is who you are. This is not what he says that you should do. This is what he says about who you are. You've been found out. He knows you more than you could possibly think. But he loves you more than you could possibly know. And here's what he says about you. He says that anyone who is in Jesus Christ is a brand new creation. The creator, you know, the one who invented all the universe is saying, I've recreated you. Jesus says, if those who come to me, they're going to be born again. They've got a a brand new start. They're walking in newness of life. Their sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Washed clean. They're remembered no more. Brand new. You are something new. He's created that out of you. Born again. That's what he says that you are. He's not only said that. He said that you've then been adopted into his family. He says you've been adopted in. That means you've become sons and daughters, the Bible says, of God Almighty. That is the God of the universe. It says that you are heirs, heirs to the king of the universe. That means that you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are princes and princesses of the almighty king of the universe. That's not like merely like a prince or princess of an earthly kingdom. That's a prince or princess of the one who's the king of the universe. It's a intergalactic cosmic level prince and princesses. That is who you are. You're an heir. So great is your redemption that the Bible says the angels look and see what God has done with you and they marvel trying to understand the full breadth of what he's done with you and who he's made you to be right now. Who are you? Here's what he said. He says that you are a temple. You are living stones. You are a temple housing the very presence of the Spirit of Almighty God, the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the primordial chaos that he turned into creation. That Spirit is housed in you, Christian. That is who you are. That is your identity, live in light of that unfathomable reality. There is nothing left for you to attain that can possibly compare to who Jesus has made you to be by the power of his death on the cross. Do you know what he's done? (laughs) He's taken all your shame and he took it on himself and conquered it. And you've found victory in that victory. Live in light of that truth, Christian. Let that loose in your life. But I think that there's some of you that today, as you're hearing this, you've had a life mired in shame. And maybe you're even religious. Maybe you even would say you're a Christian Christian. But you've had a life mired in shame. And your Christianity, as you've been following Jesus, your Christianity is all about religiously proving that you're worthy of God's love. And you're not living in light of the reality of how he's already repositioned and what he's declared about you. And maybe you have not realized, you've not actually received Jesus as your Savior. You're more following Him as a religious advisor. But He's your Savior. He's removed shame from you. And He's made you into a new creation, a new creature. Some of you need to receive, truly receive forgiveness. Become become a follower of Jesus Christ. Become a disciple. Some of you need to find a Savior today. You can become, you can be born again, become a new creation, find permanent forgiveness, and have the Holy Spirit in your life as a guarantee of heaven that's to come. And you can make that shift today. If you're ready to take that step, I want to lead you in a prayer. So right there, wherever you're at, Whether you're watching on your phone, your tablet, your computer, your TV, just right there, just pause and take this moment to find Jesus as your Savior. I want to lead you in this simple prayer. So just bow your head. And if you want to take this step of faith, then I want you to make these words your prayer. Just repeat them in your heart to God. Say, God, I need a Savior. I feel shame. But I believe you've paid for it and removed it. I want to live in that reality. I believe you died on the cross, paying for my sins. And I believe you rose again because you're God. In the flesh, you rose again, defeated death and sin. And I find victory in that moment. You are my Savior. Jesus' name. Amen. If that was your prayer just then, what what Jesus said is in that moment, you've been born again. You have a fresh start. You have grace new every morning. You're in a perpetual fresh start because His grace is pouring over you, washing away your sins every single day His mercies are new every morning. And as you're walking in this newness of life, he's making you into a new creation. The Holy Spirit's going to work on the inside out. You're beginning this journey. This is a deeply personal moment, but it's not private. And so here's what I wanna ask you to do. We wanna celebrate that with you. So I wanna encourage you to go to cityrev.org faith. It's right there on the screen. You can click on it. That link is right there in the comments. Would you just take a minute, go there to that link. Let us celebrate this incredible moment in your life. And there's a couple questions when you click on that that it's gonna ask you for just a little bit of your information only because we wanna send you a Bible so you can get to know your savior. We would love to send that Bible to you. And so take a moment and click on that link. We're gonna continue in a time of worship and here's the song we're gonna start with. We're gonna sing a song in light of the fact that he has done everything for us to save us, everything we needed for salvation, Jesus Christ has accomplished. And in light of the fact he's provided everything for our salvation, will he not provide everything else we need in our lives? We're going to start by celebrating he's provided all that we need. Let's continue in worship together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org.